Welcome to our podcast, Wayfaring Saints, where faith comes alive and the journey never ends. We're your hosts, Carson and Nathan, and we want you to join us on a transformative journey of faith and purpose as we seek to rekindle the flame of authentic Christianity, restore biblical literacy, and pursue the deep, enduring joy of knowing and following Jesus. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy today's episode of Wayfaring Saints. All right, welcome back to another episode. So far in this series, we've we've talked about redemption, how God saves us by grace through faith in his son, Jesus. And then we talked about how we are called to live holy and set apart in light of that redemption, in light of this unfathomable grace we have received. Well, in today's episode, we're gonna talk about fellowship. We've been redeemed, we've been set apart, and we've been adopted as sons and daughters into the family of God. We not only have fellowship with God, we have fellowship with each other our brothers and sisters in Christ, united by the Spirit. Now, I want to start with this idea of Christian fellowship as one of God's means of grace. And what do I mean by that? Well, like I said, we've been saved by grace. We're called to live a certain way in light of that grace. And Scripture calls us to grow in that grace. 2 Peter 3.18 instructs believers to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's important we note that it says grow in grace, not get more grace. We cannot earn God's grace, nor nor do we deserve it, but there are ways in which we grow in that grace. Now, what does Peter mean in this passage? What, What does it mean to grow in grace? Well, to quote from an article from the C.S. Lewis Institute, Peter means that we are to grow and mature in our understanding and experience of the grace we have received, and also in our knowledge about and experience of Christ. This is the way we enter more fully into the abundant life Jesus gives us. So this idea of growing in grace, this gets into what classical theologians refer to as God's means of grace, which is essentially the basis for what we today would call spiritual disciplines, practices that cultivate spiritual growth. And the biblical basis for these appointed means of grace for the church are first found in Acts 2.42, where it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So we have the word, fellowship, and prayer as the basis for God's ongoing means of grace. Grace is to sustain and empower the Christian life. Now to summarize these means of grace, author David Mathis, who writes this incredible book called Habits of Grace, he says, the means of grace are God's promised channels of continuing grace. Infinite grace is behind us and infinite grace lies ahead. And through his appointed means of grace, God is pleased to supply ongoing life and energy and health and strength to our souls. The means of grace fill our tank for the pursuit of joy, for the good of others, and for the glory of God. They are channels through which God gives us spiritual food for our survival, growth, and flourishing in the mission. So why am I saying all this, and what does it have to do with fellowship? Well, I'm, I'm talking about this first because I think that understanding fellowship as one of God's appointed means of grace for the church, something that is vital for the health and growth of every believer, will help us see and understand why fellowship is so critical. I think that in so many ways, this has become extremely neglected in the church. We've lost the reality and beauty and necessity of authentic Christian fellowship. It's become almost trivialized, like synonymous with friendship. And yet, as I've said, Christian fellowship is vital for the life and growth of believers. As we read in Acts 2.42, the early church devoted themselves to the fellowship. It wasn't an occasional thing. No, they were devoted to one another. And it's important that we understand that authentic fellowship is not the same as common human friendship. 
Again, quoting from David Mathis, he writes, Christian fellowship, our holy commonality of sharing in one Savior through one spirit as one body goes far deeper than games in a potluck. In the New Testament, fellowship is less the Christian Super Bowl party and more like the players themselves huddled on the field calling the next play. New Testament fellowship is far deeper than common human friendships. Fellowship at its best is comprised of deeply committed relationships, that is, covenant allegiance through thick and thin, through pain and inconvenience and awkwardness and annoyance. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body. In other words, when you were saved, you were baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ. You've been joined and united to Christ through the Spirit. And in this union, you are joined and united to other believers as well. So this goes far beyond common human friendships. No, we are one body sharing in one Spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. Mike Winger said in one of his sermons, as Christians, we are part of a family and we not only get Jesus as our savior, we get each other as brothers and sisters. This is hugely important because so much of what God does in our lives is through us in fellowship with each other. There was a Barna study that showed that genuine fellowship with other believers, most notably in small group type environments, was the greatest contributor to spiritual growth, the greatest contributor. And for those that were actively engaged in fellowship and discipleship, 65% strongly agreed that their relationship with Jesus brings them deep joy and satisfaction and that it impacts the way they live their life every day. But those who were not actively engaged, only about 28% said they strongly agreed. So there's a direct correlation between our spiritual vitality and our fellowship with other believers. And yet, unfortunately, According to that same Barna study, relatively few people actually believe this. In fact, they found that just one out of every six Christians believe that spiritual maturity is meant to be developed within the context of a local church or within the context of a community of faith. 37% said they prefer to pursue spiritual growth on their own. And 41% said they considered their spiritual life to be entirely private. And yet it's made clear all throughout Scripture We aren't meant to follow Jesus alone. We are called into fellowship with other believers. I mean, did you know that there are about 100 one another's in the New Testament? Love one another, be devoted to one another, honor one another, live in harmony with one another, build up one another, accept, admonish, care, serve one another, bear one another's burdens, forgive one another, be patient, kind, and compassionate to one another, teach, comfort, encourage, exhort one another, stir up one another to love and good works. I mean, these are only a few of them and I could go on, but I think the point is clear. Fellowship is not an option when it comes to following Jesus. Billy Graham always said, Christian fellowship is not optional. It's essential. It's commanded. And J.I. Packer writing on the necessity of Christian fellowship just really nails it on the head. He says, we should not think of our fellowship with other Christians as a spiritual luxury, an optional addition to the exercises of private devotion. Fellowship is one of the great words of the New Testament. It denotes something that is vital to a Christian's spiritual health and central to the church's true life. The church will flourish and Christians will be strong only when there is fellowship. We should recognize rather that such fellowship is a spiritual necessity. For God has made us in such a way that our fellowship with himself is fed by our fellowship with fellow Christians and requires to be so fed constantly for its own deepening and enrichment. So we should surround ourselves with believers who are going to encourage us, challenge us, sanctify us, and draw us closer to Christ. 
and we should seek to do the same for them. This is the beauty of fellowship. It's, it's a bunch of people saved and redeemed by Jesus seeking to follow, love, and serve him together. Carson was talking about Christians building this community or through fellowship. And one of the things we look at when we look at that is two ideas. One, that Christianity, the church, functions as something that we attend, we visit, we participate in. But the other side says that the church is community. It is the fellowship. One of the interesting things is that the church, the word for church in the Old or the New Testament is ecclesia. And ecclesia is the same exact word that's used in the Septuagint to describe Israel as a people group. So ponder on that for a second. If that same word that Jesus uses or the disciples use when writing about the church to describe what the church should look like, if that's the same word that the Septuagint uses to describe the people of Israel, then when we're looking at the ecclesia or the modern-day fellowship of believers, we're looking at a people, not necessarily a part of our life or something that we participate in. We're looking at the people. And so I want us to dig a little more in that idea, talking about finding koinonia or finding partnership, finding fellowship within the church. And so if we're thinking about the church or the ecclesia as a people group, as people who we surround ourselves with, who we walk through life with, who we live with, then we can look at it in terms of a partnership. And this word koinonia is used in in Hebrews 10, and it's used in a lot of other places that talk about how we develop fellowship with the saints. And in here, the fellowship I want to bring up is these different things. I'm going to read this in Hebrews first. Hebrews 10, verse 24 through 25, it says, Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembly together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day draw near. And so there's this idea that when we develop partnership or koinonia with people. We're doing it for specific purposes. And the first purpose is that it is an ordinance. It's something that, like Carson said, we're commanded to do. The disciples, when they first built the church in Jerusalem, it says that they devoted themselves to fellowship. And I I think Carson brought that up well. It's something that we have to do. It's something that's vital to the life of a believer. I'm not saying to the life of the church because the church is the people, but to the individual believer, it's essential that we have koinonia or fellowship with people who are also following Jesus, who are believers. Two is that our fellowship within us develops grace, love, and joy. So what better way to develop all these things than to have relationships with other Christians who stir up, or as the LSB says, stimulates grace, love, and joy within us. If we don't have people that we can celebrate things with, we don't have anything to be joyous about. If we don't have people in whom we can wrong and can wrong us and we can forgive and be forgiven, it's hard for us to understand grace in a way that is beneficial or impactful. Three is mutual interest, both spiritual and temporal. That means that all of us are walking along the same path. And I think one of the biggest detriments to the church has been this idea that Christianity is a personal relationship between me and Jesus. And that might be a hot take. I might get flack for that. But it's the idea that my relationship with Jesus is my business and no one else's business. 
It means that outside of everyone else, I, in my own with Jesus, no one can come in and judge me. No one can come in and and call out sin or encourage. It's me by myself. But that's a false. It's clear in the Bible that we share mutual interests, that we're called to be a people group. If we look at the Israelites and look at the laws and look at how they're commanded to live, and I'm not saying we live like them, but we get ideas of what the life of the believer should look like, the life of the church. And that's one, they share each other's burdens. You can't share one another's burdens if you're a law in and of to yourself, if you are your own relationship with Jesus and that's it. The second one is, that they had to regulate sin within their community. Israel was told that they bore the burden of their neighbor's sin if they didn't call it out, if they didn't confront their neighbor and talk to them about it. And so for us, we bear one another's sins. We confront each other. We encourage each other. We tell each other how to stand strong and firm in Christ. And without that, it's something that leads us to hiding And when we hide, sin festers in our life. But when we have other believers or koinonia, people that we have partnership with, then our life begins to reflect having people call out our sin. But we have to be willing to allow these people to do that. So that means that we have mutual interests, both spiritual. One, I want to help you get spiritually strong and you want to help me get spiritually strong. We want to remind each other constantly when we're down, when we're happy, when we're sad, whatever it is that Christ is there right beside us, and he's helping us through it. And then next is we have the temporal mutual interest. We have a life here on earth that we have to live, and it's important to have a community that can support us. And non-believers have said it well, is that it takes a village to run a family. It takes a village to raise kids. And if non-believers, if the world can say that and have that truth, how much more us who are called to live in that truth, who are called to be a relationship and a support for each other. Next is in our sufferings, is we have partnership in suffering. If Carson's going through a hard time, I'm available for him to call me and for us to to partner through that to help each other. If Carson's family goes through a financial struggle, then we as believers who are friends with him surrounding him have not just a desire to help, but a responsibility to help. And that's one thing that we struggle a lot, especially in the West, is we have this idea that our finances are private, our finances are our own, and we have to hold on to them and not tell each other how much we make. And I'm not saying we have to do that, but we almost idolize this personal hiddenness, the secretiveness. But when a brother is struggling financially, I'm not saying we have to pay all their bills, but we are responsible to help lift them up. If they can't feed their children, we as believers around them are there to support them, there to bring food for them, to buy groceries for them. And I'm not saying we're doing it so that they can leech onto us for the rest of their lives. No, we're there to support them in times of need and to help them get out of times of need. So that's when we're there for their sufferings. And lastly is we're there for them in glory. And that's a, that's a surprising thing because we try to, we try to talk about humility being important, but it's also important to celebrate with each other. If Carson is achieving something great, we all get to celebrate with him. We all get to see and congratulate that that's one of our own. That's one of our people who's accomplished that because we are in partnership. We're in koinonia. 
And I want to bring up Philemon. If you guys have ever read the book of Philemon, it talks about Paul trying to bring back Onesimus, and he's trying to have Philemon send him back to him so that he can serve him. And he refers to Philemon as koinonos, which means companion or partner or a sharer. So when he refers to him as that, he's calling him a person who participates in something with him. And what is that something? That something is ministry. And one thing that we forget about is that we don't do ministry alone. And I don't mean ministry in terms of you're a pastor or you're a paid member at a church, but ministry is what we are all called to do. Ministry is service. It's servanthood. And we're all called to minister to each other. And so in the same way that Philemon and Paul are referring as koinonos or companions or partners, we are to live in life referring to each other as partners in ministry or in life and service. We get to partner with each other. In the same way, John and James referred to Simon as partners or are referred to in the Bible as partners of fishing, who were his fishing partners. They were his companions who worked side by side with him. And in the same way, when we have fellowship amongst the believers, when we're part of the ecclesia or the church, we have people who we can be in partnership with. We have people who can live life and weather all of life's storms and life's joys with us. Yeah, and here's the thing too, and just talking about the importance of fellowship and fellowship as a means of grace, it's not only that, it's it's also a means of evangelism. As as we intentionally pursue unity and fellowship with one another, we are pointing others to Christ. It's this supernatural love and unity, this family bound together in Christ by the power of the Spirit that Jesus said would prove to the world that we belong to him and that he truly is who he says he is. He prayed in John seventeen twenty through 23, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. I mean, do you see that? Do you see how critical this is? Believers as a family coming together in perfect unity, fellowshipping with one another as a means of authenticating the message and person of Jesus. Like, there's a direct correlation between our unity and the reliability of our message. And so Francis Chan writes in his book, Letters to the Church, when are we going to take this seriously and spend our energy seeking unity? Not just the kind of unity where we avoid arguments with one another, but the kind where we truly live together as a family, where we meet one another's needs and care for one another, regardless of the time or effort required. What would happen if we sought Jesus fervently, loved one another sacrificially, and then shared the gospel boldly. In light of all this, why aren't we pursuing this? Why aren't we pursuing greater unity and deeper fellowship? If this is one of God's means of grace for his church, us as believers following Jesus together in intimate fellowship with one another, if that is one of the primary means God uses to encourage, strengthen, challenge, and sanctify us, and at the same time is critical to our evangelism to the world, why aren't we seriously pursuing it? Instead, we try to come up with 
all of these new strategies to make the church look more attractive and increase our numbers. No, Jesus already told us what will attract people. It's us in perfect fellowship with one another, devoted to loving and serving one another, united by the Spirit, wholeheartedly committed to following Jesus all for the glory of God. I mean, unity isn't easy, right? The scripture that says, endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That, that, that word endeavor, it's, it's to set out to, to do something with great difficulty. Like, I'm not saying unity is easy, but as we see, it's, it's critical and it's important. And it's like, I'm, I'm longing to see a revival of people just devoting themselves to authentic fellowship with other believers. People regularly getting together, opening up their homes, regardless of how put together their home is, regardless of how messy and chaotic their life is. People who are just desperate to simply fellowship with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And you know, I'm, I'm not talking about gathering for a mere hangout. I'm talking about gathering for and around the one that unites us, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, gathering to encourage, edify, rebuke, challenge, and grow one another in our faith, gathering to know and enjoy our Savior and Redeemer together to learn more about Him, worship Him, and stir up one another to live missionally. Fellowship is not an option. And where there is a lack of authentic fellowship, There is often a lack of spiritual depth and missional fervor. We need to be in authentic fellowship with other believers. So that leaves us with the question of who can be saintly companions in our life and how do we identify them? How do we select them from amongst the crowd? Well, the first thing I want to know is that in reality, Jesus leads us to the right fellowship or to the right people. As we begin to invest ourselves in fellowship in the ecclesia, so he puts people in our path who we are called to minister to, but also called to allow to minister to us. And one thing that that I want us to note, there's a difference between bringing people in who we claim to be saintly companions, people that we are going to dedicate our lives to working with, partnering with, and being in koinonia with. And there's another group of people who are called to be in fellowship with as believers who are part of the greater ecclesia. We, we don't have the capacity as humans to be in koinonia with every single person. That's just not realistic. But we are called to be in fellowship with every single person. We're called to be in this same body of Christ, working for the same goal, following Christ together, encouraging each other. But there's almost this greater call for specific people. If we look at Jesus's life, he had the crowd of the people that followed him around. He had his 12 disciples, but then he had three specific disciples who he chose to greater invest in. And for us, how do we pick those people? Because finding people who are going to walk through life with us, like all the disciples, like the crowd is easy, but how do we select those three people or however many it is who we're going to invest our time in, who we're going to allow to invest time in us? And I think that's brought up really well by Paul in Colossians 3, verse 14 through 21. And it says this, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, think this way. And if anything you think differently, God will reveal that to you also. And verse 16 says this, however, let us keep walking in step with the same standard 
to which we have attained, brothers joining in following my example, and look for those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. For many walk of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even crying, as enemies of the cross, whose end is destruction, whose God is their stomach, and glory is in their shame, who set their thoughts on the earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory, by his working through which he is able to even subject all things to himself. So the first point is that we're looking for people who are focused on the right goal of Christianity. There is so many goals that people put out there. There There's so many thoughts, so many ideas, so many plans, purposes. Every single different church has their own mission statement, has their own, this is what we're called to do, this is what we're called to be. And when we look at the Bible, it gives us a call of what that should look like. And it's the upward call of Christ Jesus, or the the blessed hope. And so we're called to be on mission and to look for people who are focused on that upward call or that blessed hope. That means that Jesus is coming back. And we're looking to be with people who are focused on that, who are in thought, knowing at any point Jesus can come back. So I'm going to live my life in a way that is intentional, prepared for him. Jesus has a story or a parable where he talks about 10 virgins and how half of them brought oil for their lamps and the other half didn't. And when the bridegroom came, half of them were ready. They were prepared. They had thought about it. And they went out with joy with the bridegroom because they had oil. And the ones who weren't prepared said, hey, let us borrow some oil. And they said, no, because there won't be enough for us. And so when you're looking for people who to partner with through life, who can be saintly companions, look for people who have the right goal of Christianity. And that means that they're thinking about Jesus coming back. They're living their life in a way that's prepared for that. Two is the people who walk the same standard as you. And I don't mean that you have the measure and you measure people against how you live, but you measure people against how the apostles lived and the standard that they left us. Paul says that they walk in the pattern that he left behind and that the apostles left behind. So then anything else outside of that is rubbish. We don't follow that. We follow the standard that the apostles left on us, for us. If anyone brings in anything from the outside, we cast it away. And I'm not saying we condemn them, but we don't focus on bringing them in because they're going to divert our attention to other things, to earthly thoughts. And I'm going to get into that in a minute. Three is we look for people who follow Paul's pattern. In 1 Peter 5, 3, it says, not leading in leadership over others, but in people who live as an example for the flock. That means when we're looking for people, we look at the fruit of their lives. And no fruit is not just, are they telling people about Jesus? Are they excited during worship? But fruit is, is their life producing the good things that Christ has left for us to produce? Are they living out good works? Are they living in a way that has honor with people around them? Are they living in a way that points people to Christ? Are they having good relationships with their spouses? Are they treating their kids well? So it says to look for people who are a good example to the flock and follow them, build relationship with them, seek out after them. These are the type of people to avoid, though. 
And they're brought back up in Colossians by Paul. And it says that these people are not just to be avoided, but they're enemies of the cross. That means that we should have nothing to do with them, that they are anathema. And you guys can look up that word later, but they're enemies of the cross. And it says people whose God is food. And yes, food is a big issue, but also things where people have made other goals or priorities or thoughts or things their God. If someone is taking something good that God has made and saying, this is the whole purpose, this is what we chase after as Christians, and it's something other than what the apostles had left us, avoid them. Then it continues to say, their glory is in their shame. So these are people who are living in open sin or open rebellion to God, have nothing to do with them. You can still be a friend with them, but don't allow them to speak life into you. Don't allow them to mentor you. Don't allow them to influence your walk with Christ. And then three are people whose thoughts are set on earthly things. We want to not have to be pulled away from the blessed hope, from our eyes set on Jesus, from our thoughts set on the heavenly things. We are wayfaring saints, which means our intention is that we're citizens of heaven. We're focused on eternity. And if people are pulling our eyes away from that, we don't want to have that intimate relationship relationship with them because they're going to continue to pull us away. Yes, if we're pulling them with us, then have relationship with them. But if it's the opposite, if they're pulling us away, avoid them. And lastly, I want to finish with this, that we are wayfaring saints. That means that everything we do, we do it with a singular purpose. And that's the purpose that we have an upward call in Christ Jesus. And so our saintly companions need to be people who also have that same goal. And so I want to encourage us as we live through life, as we walk through life, if you find someone who has these qualities, grab onto them and don't let go. All right. That's the end of today's episode. We just wanted to take a minute to thank everyone that's been listening to our podcast. We so appreciate everyone that has has listened and left reviews on our podcast on Spotify. If you haven't left a review, please consider leaving one just to help us grow our, our podcast and reach more people. We've been looking at who's been listening, and it's so cool just to see people from all over the world, people in Belgium, the United Kingdom, Canada, France, Israel, Mexico, and Uganda. So awesome just to see how this podcast is reaching people. And if you're on social media and you're one of those people just from around the world, we would love to hear from you, hear what you think of the show, how you heard about us. So just consider reaching out to us on on social media. We would love, love to get in touch with you guys. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Wayfaring Saints. Your support means the world to us. If you enjoyed it, please consider following, leaving a review, and sharing the podcast so that we can grow our community of Wayfaring Saints together. Join us next week as we continue to discuss what it means to follow Jesus as citizens of heaven living on earth.